For this morning, if you could turn to your Bibles to the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 21, uh, we have quite a bit to get through this morning, and so we'll dive right in um, to this book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, and reading from verse 1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither there shall Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we'll just end there. Revelation 21 is is fairly long. In the early church, there was a great anticipation for heaven and for the kingdom of the Lord. It was a time when Christians were very loosely tied to this world. And even now in parts of the world where Christians don't have it as easy as we do, there is a longing, a longing and a desire to be with Christ and to be where he is. However, in our area of the world, it seems, there seems to be an aversion to the eternal realm. And it's something that's not often spoken of. And there seems to be a lack of desire for our true home. Paul would teach us the exact opposite should be true. And if you turn in your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays it out for us. Philippians chapter 3, and reading from verse 17, Paul writes, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which, which walk so, uh, as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Verse 24, our conversation is in heaven. And that word conversation actually means, and most translations would render it, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul eloquently states what should be the most obvious thing to a believer. Everything that belongs to us is in heaven. 
Our Father is there. Our Savior is there. Our fellow believers who have passed away are there. Our citizenship is there. Our reward is there. Our treasure is there. In fact, the only thing that isn't there is our bodies and souls. But everything that we own, that we possess, that we can claim is in heaven. It is in heaven. And if indeed it is God whom we love, and it's, it's very easy, I don't think anybody asked, asked pointedly, do you love God, would, would ever say, no, I don't love God. But if it, is, if it is God who you truly love, if it is God who you truly love, if he is indeed the one that we sing of, and all those songs that we sang fit perfectly with this message, if he, God is truly the one that we sing of, then we would long to be in heaven with him. Then we would long to be in heaven. We would have a desire to be with him. And a desire, to desire heaven, well, it has a profound effect on our lives. Turn over to 1 John. First John chapter 3. And just the first couple verses, very familiar passage. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, that is Christ, God, is pure. Longing for heaven cleanses you. Longing and having a desire to be with the Lord cleanses you. If all of your joy and longing is wrapped up in heaven and a desire to be with God, then you can endure anything that this life throws at you. Your joy cannot be affected if it is in a place where men cannot touch it. And so if all your joy is in Christ, it is truly focused on heavenly things, that you are truly looking upwards and not concerned about the things in this life. If your focus is heaven and to be with the Lord, well, that joy that exists that we have in Christ, well, that won't be affected because man cannot touch the heavenly things. Where moth and rust doth not corrupt, it is everlasting, reserved in heaven. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Do we see the significance in all of this? Our hearts should be set on heaven, not on this world at all in any way, shape, or form. A mind and heart set on things above runs and flees from sin and desires to do the Father's will. It is a heart that cannot be changed and a heart that will endure. We set our mind on things above, set our heart and mind. Now heaven, which we're going to be looking at 
this morning. Heaven is referred to some 550 times in Scripture. 54 of those times, roughly, are brought up or mentioned in the book of Revelation. The Old Testament word for heaven means the heights. And the New Testament word is Uranus, from which we get the planet Uranus. Um, and it simply means lifted up, elevated, or raised up. So it's a high position. That's what heaven is. It's up. It's up. Now before we go any further, let's just sort of recap um, in Revelation, because it's been a little while since we, we went through Revelation chapter 20. Um, but we'll see where Revelation 21 lines up chronologically. So as this chapter begins, and you can turn back in your Bibles to Revelation 21, as this chapter begins, all the repentant, unrepentant sinners of all the ages, demons, men, Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist, which are mentioned previously, they have all, at this point, been thrown and cast into the lake of fire. They are out of the presence of God and the saints forever. From this moment forward, they will never be mentioned of again. They will never be mentioned of. Revelation 21 and 22 only deals with the eternal state and those in eternity with Christ, um, with the new heaven and the new earth, the redeemed, those um, children of God. In addition to that, the entire universe has been melted with a fervent heat. It has been consumed. And if you remember in Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, who, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So the, the earth and the heavens that we know now, that we now know, are gone. They flee from the presence of the Lord. There is no place found for them at all. At all. And now that brings us to this chapter. Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John is in essence pulling this directly from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 65 verse 17, Isaiah mentions how God will create a new heavens and a new earth. And that the former things will not be remembered. Later on in chapter 66 of Isaiah, Isaiah mentions it again, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that God will make all things new. What Isaiah predicted way long before John is writing the book of Revelation, John is now seeing. So he's seeing what Isaiah mentions, that the new, there will be a new earth, there will be a new heaven. And John wonderfully gets to see this. And it's a stark reminder for us, just the beginning of Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's a stark reminder for us that the world that we care so much for is only temporary. This, everything that you see around you, is temporary. We are not to restore it or preserve it. Now, that doesn't mean that we should go around throwing garbage and trying to destroy the world and, and, and not taking care of the things that God has given us. God tells us that we are to be stewards for everything that he has given us. But this world is a failing, faltering world. 
And the ultimate goals of those that want to save the planet are pointless. Why? Because one day, God will bring into existence a new heaven and a new earth. That this earth is temporary. And that people wanting to save the earth, and it's, it's very popular in, in our society right now, and governments are spending tens of billions of dollars on, on trying to protect this earth because this is all we have. But all of that is just simply another case of the world worshiping the creation rather than the creator. The devil has us so cleverly deceived, and he's kept us so busy. Now this word new, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's an important word in the context of this passage. The word used here is not new in the sense of, well, it's not old. This is the old, and here, here is the new. Rather, it, and the Greek word used is kainos, means new in quality. It means fresh or different. Now, the point that John is trying to make here is that this new heavens and earth is completely different from the one that we know today. Completely different. The moment that sin entered the world and death through sin is the moment the world needed to be destroyed. Sin and, de and thereby decay, and so it would no longer be fit. In Job chapter 15, verse 15, Job writes, The heavens are not pure in your sight. They have been corrupted. If you remember in Romans chapter 8, how all of creation was subjected to futility after sin entered the world. That all of creation groans because it knows that the state that it's currently in is not the final state. It's not what God intended the heavens are not pure in your sight. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 25 says the land became defiled. The land became defiled. In Isaiah 24 verse 5, Isaiah writes, The earth is defiled by its people because they have disobeyed the laws. That this current world that we live in is completely corrupt and it is defiled. It is defiled. And it must be destroyed. In Psalm 102, and I'll get you to, to turn there, uh, the psalmist writes uh, one of the most beautiful pictures and one of the most vivid pictures for us on why this must take place. Psalm 102 um, and verse 25. And the psalmist writes, Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Verse 26, they shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, a vesture or clothing shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that just like the clothes that we wear, and I know sometimes we want to hold on to clothes and we have something from high school that this was our favorite shirt and it has holes everywhere in it, but we just want to keep wearing it. You should really throw that out. 
Um, and the, what the psalmist is saying here is that just like our clothes wear out, they get holes, they get dirty, so too is all of creation. That it is wearing out, that the current state that, it, it, that it's in, it's wearing out. And one day, one day God will put on new clothing and it will be dressed new and it will be completely new. And so it must take place. Why? Because this world, and in fact all of the universe, has been polluted by the sin of mankind. And, well, what is this world going to be like? What is, what is the new heaven and the new earth going to be like? And that's a question that almost everybody will ask. John gives us a single clue and just one clue uh, in verse 1. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away because they had to, they were defiled, so God needs to institute something that is new. And the one clue that he gives as to, well, what is this new earth, what is this new universe going to be like? The clue that he gives, and there was no more sea. That's the only clue that John gives, there was no more sea. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why that's the clue that John gives? Well, roughly three-quarters of the Earth's surface currently is covered in water. In our last series, we took a look at some of the destruction, but also some, some, such of the, uh, some of the transformation that the Earth is going to go through during not only the tribulation period, the, the seven years of distress and judgment on the Earth, but also the Millennial Kingdom and sort of what's going to happen there. And a lot of it had to do uh, with water. However, even during the millennial reign of Christ, man will still be dependent on water. Uh, so what is John saying? What he is saying is that the new heaven and the new earth no longer require or operate on water. Completely new climate conditions. Completely different from the world that we now know. And however we appear in glorified form, we will not be dependent on water. In fact, the only reference to water in this new heaven and new earth is in Revelation 22, where John sees a river of water of life flowing from the throne of God. But that, um, in, in the context there, is not referred to as referring to water as we know it, not the H2O kind at least. Um, and so John uses this language in Revelation 21.1, to set in our minds the reality that the future world will be nothing like our current state, the current world. And the eternal state is fundamentally different. That it's completely different to the world that we now know. So that's verse 1. Verse 2, John continues, So not only have we seen the introduction of the new heaven and the new earth, not only have we gotten a glimpse as to, well, this new heaven and new earth will be completely and fundamentally different from what we know now, but in verse 2, John says, And I, saw, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And a couple thoughts for this verse. We are introduced to the capital the capital city of heaven known as the New Jerusalem. And it's referred to that a couple times in the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem. Not the old one, 
but it is the new Jerusalem. It's, it's a theme going on. God makes all things new, we'll read later on in this chapter. Um, and so it is a new Jerusalem. I want to point out that this city is not all that there is. A lot of people get confused and, and just think, well, the new Jerusalem, that's, that's it. We'll just, we'll be there, we'll exist there, and we'll stay there. Um, there's a reason why dimensions are given for this city, because this isn't it. This isn't everything that the new heavens and the new earth contain. Uh, this city, if you read a little bit further down in Revelation 21, it's actually 1,500 miles cubed uh, is the dimensions of this. It's measured, an angel measures it, um, which is, is weird to think. I don't even know, I can't picture that, what that would even look like. Um, but that's not everything. There is also a new earth that we can explore, a new universe with galaxies and stars and planets that we'll be able to explore as well. So this isn't just it. Although this, that John focuses on it, sees it, is a beautiful, beautiful imagery for us um, to get a lot out of. But I just want to make that point, that although this city is massive, it's not everything that is contained. It's also the source of, of many songs. Um, you know, the gold streets are mentioned here, the pearly gates and mansions. Uh, the word mansions in the Bible is actually a mistranslation. Um, it, it should just be a dwelling place or a room. Uh, is how it should be translated. Um, and so, no, you don't get a mansion that's silver-lined uh, at all. Uh, people have also gone on to say that this is a figurative city, that the city that's mentioned here is just figurative in nature, that it's just a picture that John saw. Well, if that's the case, I have no idea what John is talking about. Um, and so John refers to this as an actual city in reference to a physical city, Jerusalem. Uh, and so we must treat this as an actual city. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 it says, by faith he, that is Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. Why was he doing all of that? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was looking for this city. For this city, the foundations that are laid by God. And it, you see here mentioned, it's coming down from God out of heaven. It is a God-breathed city. It is a God-made city. The foundations have been laid by God. And so Abraham was looking for this city. Now what, what's also interesting is at the end of verse 2, it says that this city, this holy city, this new Jerusalem that it is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, you know, North American-wise, there's a couple of you that, that are engaged and going to be married. Um, you know, we have this, this ceremony. Everything takes place in a day, and we're done. Go for a honeymoon. Go enjoy um, married life, um, and, and that's it. But in Jewish culture, it's actually quite different um, from the way that we do things here. And there's three parts to a Jewish wedding. Three parts specifically. First, there was the betrothal. Um, now, we have an engagement period where a, a man proposes to his, to his uh, eventual wife, and there's a, you know, you're proposed for a certain period of time. But betrothal in Jewish culture is actually a binding contract. Um, so 
the families of both of those people that would be married, they get together and they essentially sign a binding contract binding those two people together. Now, those two people um, during this betrothal period, they don't get together physically at all. Um, that, that comes later on. But they are betrothed, that is, they are contractually obligated to eventually marry, if, you know, in terms that, that might be easier to understand. Second was an event called the presentation. Now, presentation was when the bride was brought out and presented to the groom, and normally there would be about a week-long feast. A week-long feast. At the end of the week, there would be a ceremony. I can't imagine organizing or paying for any of that. One day is, is crazy enough. Um, but after the ceremony, uh, that this takes place, this week-long feast, a ceremony, then the consummation takes place after all of that. Now, what we see here and what John is setting up for us is one of the clearest pictures of God's overall plan. And it's one of the most beautiful pictures. It's magnificent. And John MacArthur, writing on this subject uh, of marriage in, re in relation to um, God's, God's people, um, he writes, because he writes it far better than I could explain it, he says, The betrothal took place in eternity past, when God wrote the names of his own beloved in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. The betrothal took place in eternity past when God the Father pledged to give to the Son a redeemed humanity that would be chosen. The presentation? The presentation occurred at the rapture of the church when the bride was taken to be with the bridegroom. And for seven years, a week, there would be a wonderful feasting. At the end of that period, the ceremony takes place. You could liken the ceremony to the Millennial Kingdom, the great celebration, the final great feast as the bride and the groom are joined together, and it's followed by the consummation, would, which would be like the eternal state. Wonderful imagery there. Wonderful imagery. And so when John describes the city coming down out of heaven from God, he is, de he is describing the time for the consummation. But why does he describe it that way specifically, that it is, it's a bride? Well, because it contains the bride, and he sees the city as the bride's city. All of God's redemptive plan was to get a bride for his son. And at this point, it is the final collecting of that bride. All of the Old Testament saints are included here, all the tribulation saints, all those converted during the millennial kingdom, all of the church are included, and so the bride descends into its eternal, final state. Now you might ask, well, what happens with Revelation 19 for those that, that know what takes place during Revelation 19? In Revelation 19, we have the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. But if you read it, you realize not everyone is included in it. There is a bride and there are guests. And it clearly points to the church being the bride and this marriage supper taking place after the rapture but before the millennial kingdom. And so we have this taking place in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 20, we have the introduction of the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years. And then after that, we have the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth. However, 
when the bride descends in Revelation 21, I firmly believe it contains all of redeemed humanity. That this is the coming together of all saints of all the ages. This is the final consummation. This is the final resting place of all of redeemed humanity as it finds its place in the presence of God. Now verse 3, and I just want to finish with one final thought on this verse. Verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The tabernacle is a place of dwelling. It's where the Father lives. And the New Jerusalem is the Father's house. God is living in the same house as man. Just stop and think about that for a second. We just considered how holy God is. And yet, God's house, God lives with us, with those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When the prophet Isaiah wrote the words, they will call him Emmanuel, which by interpretation means God with us, he was not only considering the Lord Jesus Christ being born as a man, but he was looking forward to this day as well. Emmanuel, God with us. God living with man. No more to be veiled at, at all. No temple, no, no pillar or cloud, only God with us. The fullness of Emmanuel. The voice that John hears seems to repeat this message several times, and I leave it up to you to figure out why it's repeated multiple times. But what a marvelous thought. God with us. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. You know, it, it goes back to the, the previous message. Not only did God save us, that's all he, he didn't even have to do that. But he could have just saved us and redeemed us and said, your sins are forgiven, here's a giant room to live in. And called it a day and we would be eternally grateful and thankful to him for doing that. For plucking us out, out of hell. But in Revelation 21 we see, well we start to see the blessings that he pours out on us. How he loves to bless us. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. He creates all of that. He creates a new city. The new Jerusalem. His house which he builds, which Christ has gone to build rooms in for us. That we might dwell with him forever for all eternity. And then in verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Wonderful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we were able to open up your word this morning, and we thank you for this wonderful hope that we have, that one day we will see you face to face, arrayed in all your glory and magnificence, that there will be no need of the Son, Father, for you are the light thereof. We look forward to the day when we see this new Jerusalem, this holy city, a city untainted by sin, a world, a future new heaven, a new earth, untainted by sin, perfect in your eyes, where we will live and worship you for all eternity. 
and enjoy all the blessings that you have for us. So, Father, we just pray that as we go forward with the rest of today, might we rejoice and be glad. And might we just praise and adore you for all that you have done. How not only did the Lord Jesus Christ come here to die in our place, to pay the price for our sin, but one day he is coming to take us to be with him forever and eternity. Father, we look forward to that day. We yearn, we long for that day. But until that day comes, might you give us the strength to live lives according to your will in this world. And might we not hold anything of this world close to ourselves, but might we long, might we look forward to, just like Abraham, a city whose foundation is God, might we be longing to be with you. Father, we just thank you again for this time. We commit it to you. We offer it up to you. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.